0: makes me want to nest classics so bad, you guys. I'm looking all over town trying to find those because that would be a game I would play. I would really enjoy that. Hey, we're talking a little bit about David and Goliath this morning. And the funny thing is, as a pastor, is that when I stand up here and I say to you, I'm going to talk to you about David and Goliath, whether you're a religious person or not, it's a story that you're pretty familiar with, isn't it? It's something that's just, I don't know, it's lodged in our collective conscience, uh, consciousness as a culture. We just know The story of David and Goliath, the little guy who was able to overcome and defeat the big giant. We understand that, like, that story is so powerful and motivating, you know? You can't see that video. You can't read the story and not get hyped yourself, you know? You want to go out and fight something. You want to go out and prove that even though you're only five foot six, you could take on anybody. All right, a little too personal there, but you know what I'm saying, right? Like, it is a story that we know and man we identify with, right? If you watch any sports, and it even doesn't matter what sport it is that you watch, if you watch sports, you will find that the announcers are constantly using the metaphor of David and Goliath, right? These are the the little high school football guys over here. They're the David, and they're going up against the city champs over here. The Goliath, that's actually like their team mascot. They are the Goliaths, right? So if you watch sports, you're going to see the David and Goliath, little guy versus the big. Guy metaphor constantly. If you are in business, oh man, if you read any business books at all, they use the David and Goliath story all the time. You know, Apple was the little David and they were trying to beat the big tech giants, IBM and all these other guys. And they were able to slay Goliath. I mean, we see this story being used over and over again in our society to show us how a little guy to show us how somebody who's not particularly special, who doesn't have a ton of resources, can still overcome and accomplish big giant things if they have faith in the right things, maybe with a little bit of lateral thinking and ingenuity. I mean like David will conquer Goliath every time. In fact, this story kind of forms the basis of one of the really famous sayings that you guys, I'm going to start the first half of it and you can finish the second half. We, we say this uh, quite a bit, the bigger they are, The harder they fall right and that comes right here out of the story of david and goliath So this is a story that you're familiar with And i'm going to tell you that this morning you're going to run the risk of checking out Because we're going to walk through a story that you're already familiar with you just saw the whole thing play out on screen And so if I don't do a really good job Then we run the risk of you saying yeah, I know what's going to happen david's going to kill goliath Rah rah rah. I should go out and conquer too. But let me tell you something I think that we have completely misunderstood the story of David and Goliath, that everything you've ever been told about what this story means, what it points to, why it has value, why you should pay attention this morning and not just check out because you watched the cartoon and got the story, everything that we think we know about this story turns out to be maybe not wrong, but definitely superficial. That this story, this moral, this meaning that you've heard throughout your whole life, little guy believes in himself, uh, attacks things from a different perspective, and boom, he conquers and overcomes the Goliath. That makes for a good cartoon. But the real meaning behind this story is so much deeper it's a lot less superficial and i believe when you understand what this story truly points to it has the power not only to change the way you view david and goliath but also the way that you view your own story in the process now i know that's a big promise for me to make to you this morning all right so uh, at the end of the message you can tell me whether or not i delivered so track with me here and you could say nah bro you didn't do that you said you're going to but you didn't or you could say wow my eyes are open i am seeing this in a brand new way so we're going to read through this this story. We're actually going to walk through the verses. There are quite a few of them, but that's okay. It's a quick moving story, which is great. It's found in 1 Samuel. So if you want to follow along in your Bible, you can. We also have the verses here on the screen for you. 1 Samuel chapter number 17. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. If you've got a different version of the Bible, don't sweat it. They say basically the same thing, okay? Here we go. 1 Samuel chapter number 17. The scripture says, "...the Philistines now mustered their army for battle, and they camped between one city, I can't say, in the region of Judah, and another city, I can't say, in a different region of Judah." I went to Bible college, you guys. <laughs> now, Joshua told you a little bit about the Philistines last week. He told you that these were bad guys. They were Israel's mortal enemy, that they were constantly trying to invade and enslave ancient Israel. And Israel was always fighting back, trying to protect their borders. The Philistines were bad guys. I mean, truly, truly, Terrible warriors. If you've ever heard of people like Genghis Khan, you know, if you remember him from your history classes, he would go in and he would kill basically everybody, including children. He would enslave women. These Philistines were kind of his archetype. He was basing his battle plans off of what these guys did. This was not just like a neighboring country and they were fighting over land and resources. The Philistines actually wanted to wipe the Israelites off the face of the planet. And so the Bible tells us here in verse number one that they have gone to war. Samson had freed the Israelites a couple of hundred years before in the story Joshua told you last week. But by now the Philistines have reconquered or they're trying to reconquer the Israelites. And so they've mustered their armies for battle against the Israelites. The scripture says in verse number two, That's Saul. He's the king of the Israelites, okay? He's the dude in charge. He countered by gathering his Israelite army near the valley of Elah. So the Philistines and Israelites faced each other on opposite sides uh, or on opposite hills with the valley between them. So on this ridge, we've got the Philistine army, then there's a valley here, and then up on this ridge, we've got the Israelite army. And they're kind of stuck because if you understand anything about warfare, you know that you never want to give up the tactical advantage that higher ground offers you, right? So neither army wants to go down into the valley because if they do, the other one will Just stay on the ridge and shoot arrows down or smack them down when they try to come up the other side. So they're there waiting. Nobody is making the first move. Verse number four then Goliath, yep, the Goliath, the big guy, the bad guy, the giant. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion. Now, that word is going to be so incredibly important throughout this message. I want you to burn it into your mind. Champion, champion, champion. You need to understand the concept of a champion in order to understand why this story matters so much. Then Goliath, a Philistine, and I'll tell you what a champion is for the record, okay? We're going to get there. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, that's the region of his country that he was from, he came out from the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. The scripture says he was over nine feet tall. Now, if you're here and you approach the Bible with a bit of a skeptical bent, you're like, seriously, come on, you think this dude was nine feet tall? That's ridiculous. Nobody's nine feet tall. But you know, in modern times, we have record just in the last hundred years of somebody who was eight foot 11 inches tall, the tallest man that ever lived, Robert Wadlow. And so if he could be eight eleven, then maybe it's not so hard to believe that Goliath was nine feet or nine foot one or nine foot two. I mean, in the history of all the people that have ever lived, are we absolutely 100 percent certain that it was impossible that somebody didn't grow to be that tall? I don't know. I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt. So the Bible says he was over nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. So his coat of mail was heavier than some of you guys. He also wore bronze leg armor and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam. I don't know, that reference is kind of lost on me. Maybe you get it. It Apparently means it was a big weapon, okay? It was tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds, and his armor bearer walked ahead of him carrying a shield. Goliath was a tank, you guys. I mean, he was the ancient equivalent of a walking tank. He was a guy that had never been defeated in battle. He probably would never be defeated in battle because he had the latest in military technology. He had all of this experience as a warrior, we're going to find out. And so he he strode out there in front of the other army confident. Like, hey, I'm Goliath, suck us. There is no way you're going to be able to take me down. He had all the confidence in his resources, in his abilities, and in his skills. Goliath stood and he shouted a taunt to the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight? He said, I am the Philistine champion. There's that word again. But you are only the servants of King Saul. Saul. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, then you will be our slaves. See, you thought Game of Thrones invented single combat, but no, it's like been here for thousands of years. Goliath says, tell you what, you choose a guy and I'll fight him. And if I kill him, then we win the battle. You guys are our slaves. But if he kills me, (laughs) not likely. But if he does, then we will become your slaves. Let's not fight. Let's not lose all this life between the armies. Just the two of us. Let's go at it. He says, I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. Now, verse 11 is also really important in understanding this story. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. Terrified and deeply shaken. Now, verse number 12 We get the hero of the story, right? The guy we're all waiting on. Now, David was the son of a man named Jesse, an uh, Ephrathite from Bethlehem in the land of Judah, same Bethlehem that eventually Jesus would be born in. Je- uh, Jesse was an old man at the time and he had eight sons. Jesse's three oldest sons, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shimea, had already joined Saul's army to fight the Philistines. So they were off at the battle. They were with Saul. They heard Goliath taunting. They were terrified and shaking in their boots. David was the youngest son in verse 14. David's three oldest brothers stayed with Saul's army, but David went back and forth so he could help his father with the sheep in Bethlehem. So he would bring his brother's supplies on the battlefront, and then he would come home and tell his dad how things were going, and he would take care of sheep out in the pasture. For 40 days, every morning and evening, the Philistine champion strutted in front of the Israelite army. 40 days! This went on a really, really long time. One day Jesse said to David, Take this basket of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread. Carry them quickly to your brothers. And give these 10 cuts of cheese to their captain. See how your brothers are getting along and bring back a report on how they were doing. They are doing. David's brothers were with Saul and the Israelite army at the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. So dad says, all right, youngest son, I need you to run an errand. Go help your older brothers, give them some supplies, and then come back here so you can get back to work in the fields. So David left the sheep with another shepherd, and he set out early the next morning with the gifts, just as Jesse had directed him. He arrived at the camp just as the Israelite army was leaving for the battlefield with shouts and battle cries. So they're getting out of their tents, they're getting up, and they're like, today's the day, we're going to go fight Goliath. In my mind, that's how they sounded. All right, so they go out with shouts and battle cries. Soon the Israelite and Philistine forces stood facing each other again, right? They're at the edge of this this valley. They stood facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of the supplies. He delivered the supplies in verse number 22, and he hurried out to the ranks to greet his brothers. As he was talking to them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks, just like he had been doing. Then David heard him shout his usual taunt to the army of Israel. As soon as the Israelite army saw him, meaning Goliath, they began to run away in fright. Have you seen the giant, the men asked. He comes out each day to defy Israel. The king has offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. He will give that man one of his daughters for a wife, and that man's entire family will be exempted from paying taxes. Now, I don't know which was the better deal in this particular uh, scenario, but, you know, I mean, both of them were probably pretty good. They had their perks. Verse twenty six. David asked the soldiers standing nearby. Wait, 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 What? 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 What will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? I mean, who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? Yeah. David's got some. He's got some bravado, if nothing else, right? And these men gave David the same reply. They said, yeah, that's exactly what the reward is for killing him. Verse 28, man, if you've had siblings growing up, you're gonna identify with this part of the story so much. But when David's oldest brother, Eliab, heard David talking to the men, he was angry. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? Oh, savage, man. (laughs) I know about your pride and your deceit. You just wanna see the battle Time to go home and do your chores, little boy. You don't belong out here with the men. I'm glad I only had sisters growing up. I just want to put that out there because brothers sound mean. Verse 29. What have I done now? David replied. I was only asking a question. Man, how many times have you said that? I was just asking. He walked over to some others, and he asked them the same thing, and he received the same answer. Then David's question was reported to King Saul, and the king sent for him. Hey, Saul, there's like a little kid running around out here talking about running out to fight Goliath. You might want to do something about this. So in verse 32, David goes in front of Saul, and he says to the king, this little boy, he says to the king, don't worry about this, Philistine. I'll go and fight him. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There is no way that you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You are only a boy, and he has been a man of war since his youth. Now, I want to point out something here. In Israelite society, ancient Israel, modern uh, Jewish society as well, a boy becomes a man at 13 when he's bar mitzvahed. So the fact that they continue to call David a boy and not a man in this passage most likely means he had not turned 13 yet. So you're dealing with a 9-year-old, 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old. This is a young kid, and he shows up with all the swagger you can imagine. And he's like, I'll take him down everybody's like, you've got to be kidding me. You don't even showered regularly. You know what I mean? (laughs) If you know any 10-year-old boys, you understand what I'm talking about. All right. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. But David persisted. I have been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club, and I rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw, and I club it to death. I have done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this nine-foot-tall pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will also rescue me from this Philistine. And then the next verse says... Saul finally consented, which if you're the king of the country, if you're the commander in chief, if you're in charge of all of the armies, sending an 11 or 12 year old boy to go fight the special forces of another army is a terrible, awful, almost cowardly decision. And yet that's exactly what Saul does. Saul finally consented, consented. And he says, all right, go ahead. It's your funeral. And David's like, what? And he said, may the Lord be with you. <laughs> then Saul gave David his armor. A bronze helmet and a a coat of mail. And David put it on and he strapped the sword over it. And he took a step or two to see what it was like, for he had never worn such things before. He protested to Saul, I can't go in these. I'm not used to them. So David took the armor off. He picked up five smooth stones from a stream. He put them into his shepherd's bag. Then armed only with his shepherd's staff and sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine Goliath walked out towards David with his shield-bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. We don't use the word ruddy very often. The word ruddy means red. He's like reddish in color. Oh, I hope that means he was a redhead, you know? I I really want to identify with him. He's a ruddy-faced boy. In fact, in other parts of David's story, we find out he was an incredibly handsome young man, too. I'm just saying, you know? I mean, I see some similarities. Uh, he was young, he was handsome, and he was reddish in complexion, whatever that means. Uh, David, uh, Goliath saw him, and he sneered in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals, Goliath yelled. David replied to the Philistine, You come at me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you, and I will cut off your head. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know. They'll know that the Lord rescues his people, that there is a God in Israel, that he saves his people, but not with a sword and a spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. As Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran to meet him. Reaching into a shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it with a sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. Now, if you're a little unfamiliar with biblical weaponry, you might think of this as a slingshot, like a modern elastic, like, pachoo, pachoo, pachoo sort of thing like you had when you were a kid. That's not what this was. This was two strips of leather with a kind of pouch tied in the middle. You'd put a rock in it and you'd swing it around almost like a helicopter and you'd let one of those throngs loose and this rock would go uh, sailing through the, through the air. They, they say that ancient warriors that used slings, right? You, we've all heard of archers. They were kind of the artillery. If you go back even earlier than archers, we had slings. And ancient slingers were able to send rocks, like big fist-sized rocks, up to 80 miles an hour through the air. And we read from ancient sources outside of the Bible that they were actually capable of hitting birds in mid-flight if they wanted to. So this was a bad piece of weaponry, all right? This wasn't a toy, and it wasn't your little, you know, toy slingshot that you had when you were a kid. This was significant. This was serious. And so reaching into a shepherd bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. I love how descriptive the Bible is sometimes. The, the Bible says the stone sank into his forehead forehead and Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. Verse 50, last one we'll read. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone for he had no sword. Then David ran over and he pulled Goliath's sword from its sheath and David used it to kill him and cut off his head. David actually becomes king of the entire stinking country after this because people were so blown away by his bravery. They were so blown away that he was the little guy, the the underdog, and he was willing to have courage and faith and act when nobody else did. But I told you a moment ago that there's something wrong with looking at this story superficially. That if you approach this the way we typically do, that is you see yourself in this story as David, right? I mean, that's the point, isn't it? Like we are supposed to see ourselves as the underdog, the young guy, the one without all the resources or experience. We are supposed to identify with him because every one of us knows there is a hero inside of us. And we're just waiting for the right opportunity for it to burst out. I mean, you've heard this, especially if you're in the business world or if you've been on sports teams. Man, we hear this all the time. You just need to have faith in yourself or faith in God if you're a Christian business person, right? You need to have faith. And you need to do some lateral thinking, get outside the box, figure something out for yourself. And if you'll act when everybody else is still standing still, paralyzed by fear, then you too can be a hero. You can slay your Goliath. Man, you've got Goliath, don't you? Just like David did. You've got financial hurdles in your life. You're wondering, how am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to retire? That is a Goliath. It is standing over me, and I don't know what I'm going to do about it. You've got relational Goliaths. There are people that you haven't talked to in your family in a decade or more, and you're wondering, how am I going to overcome this Goliath? How am I going to find the victory? Maybe I just need to have faith like David. Maybe I just need to act when everybody else is doing nothing. Maybe all that's necessary is for me to man up and get the job done. But here's what I think. I think that's an okay way to read the story, but it's a bit superficial. That maybe you are not supposed to see yourself as David in this story after all. You're in here, but you're not in there as David. I'm also going to assume for a second that you're not Goliath. I'll give you the benefit of that doubt, all right? So you're not David, And you're not Goliath. And by the way, there are some real problems with looking at yourself as if you're David in this story. First of all, if you view yourself as David, you will start to act like Goliath. If you view yourself as David, you will start to act like Goliath did. Goliath put all of his uh, hope, he put all of his courage in the fact that he had resources, and the fact that he had experience, and the fact that he was bigger And if we're not careful, we can say, well, my faith in God is just another one of my resources. God isn't going to let me fail. I'm invincible. Who does that sound like? Not like David, but like Goliath. If you're not careful, when you put yourself in David's shoes, you will start to strut around as if you were Goliath. And all of a sudden, you've switched roles in this particular story. There's another problem. And that is that there are some Goliaths in your life that you cannot defeat with courage or ingenuity or a willingness to act when everybody else is standing still. I give you a bunch of examples, but I'll give you two of the main ones. What happens when you get the diagnosis from the doctor? They say it's terminal. What happens when death comes? like it does for every one of us. I'm not giving you a newsflash when I say that courage can't kill cancer. It might make it easier to bear, but it cannot give you victory over cancer. You could end up succumbing. Having faith in yourself, being willing to move and act when nobody else does, is not going to mean that you get to live to 200. So what happens when you come up against a Goliath that you literally cannot kill. If you're David and you come up against a Goliath that you literally cannot kill, you're out of luck. You're out of choices. You're out of chances. And then there's one more issue that I have with seeing ourselves as David in this particular passage. And that is, and I'm going to speak for myself here, but I wonder if any of you might identify with this as well. I have never in my life had faith like David, just to be real honest with you. When I look at David, he had perfect faith. You know what I'm saying? He's like, I don't care if I'm an 11-year-old boy. You've defied the armies of the living God, and I will cut off your head. I have never had that much courage or boldness. I've done some incredibly faith-filled things in my life. When I felt like God was calling me to go into the ministry, I was getting ready to go into college, and I was going to study animal sciences. That's what I wanted to do with my life. And so that's what I was going towards. And then I felt like God had given me a call to become a pastor, and I had to leave behind what I thought my life was going to be and choose to step out in faith, right? That was a faith-filled decision. There was the time that God called me to move from Florida to Canada of all places. That was a faith-filled decision. There was a time that God said, I want you to start a church. Even though you've never been a, a senior pastor before, although you've never planted a church before, I want you to go do it. I've had all of these different big faith experiences. I mean, guys, I ate street food in Honduras one time, okay? I have taken risks all my life. All right, that last one's not a big deal, but the other ones are. And here's the thing. In every one of those situations... I was completely terrified. Guys, I wish I could tell you that when God called me to plant a church in Canada, that I was like, let's do it. (laughs) I wasn't. I bawled my eyes out. I couldn't sleep at night. I shook. I didn't eat. I begged God to give me a reason not to go because I didn't want to. I was so scared that things could go badly, that nobody would show up, that I'd return back home as a failure. There has never been a time in my life where I've had the sort of faith that David did. Maybe you have, but I've never been there once. So if I see myself as David and I'm looking and I'm making comparisons, I don't compare so well. I see more differences between me and David than I do similarities. So maybe I was not supposed to see myself as David this whole time. Maybe you're not supposed to see yourself as David either. We said you're not David. We said you're probably not Goliath, although I guess you could be in some scenarios. That leaves one other group of people in here that actually is supposed to represent you and me. Do you remember who they are? The crowd. The armies who are paralyzed with fear. I think when you understand this story properly, That this is not a story about how you and I, through faith and ingenuity and motivation and God on our side, can accomplish and conquer anything. I think this story is actually much deeper than that. I think this story raises a question. It's a question you've had, even if you've never voiced it before. We'll put it here on the screen for you. The question is this, what does God give to frightened people? See, if you read this story the way you always have, the way you've always heard it, then you're going to say the answer to that question is courage. That's what God gives you is courage. When someone is frightened, God gives them courage. That's the way you've always heard this story. That's the way that you may live your life today. You're scared about a decision. You're scared because you are facing down a Goliath. And the one thing you're waiting on from God is for him to give you courage like David so that you can attack it and be victorious and overcome. But when you understand what this story is really trying to tell us, it's not that God gives frightened people courage. It's that God gives frightened people a champion. All right, now I told you that word was important. I told you that was important. We saw earlier that Goliath was a champion. That he was someone who came and fought on behalf of other people as a substitute. He fought in his army's place. He went to battle so that everybody else would not have to. Now, if you understand... That this passage shows us God gives us a champion. You don't see yourself as David. You see yourself as the scared crowd. You see David as the champion. Because here's the thing, guys. When everything is on the line, you don't need help. You need rescue. When everything hangs in the balance, when you're in front of a Goliath that you cannot kill, you don't need God's help. You need God's redemption. And what you find out when you read these stories, I'm sorry to get worked up, but guys, you've been reading the Bible the whole, you've been reading it wrong. I'm telling you. Look, when you look at every single one of these stories that we've been walking through, and in particular the Old Testament stories, you find that God follows this pattern over and over again. We read it, we identify the hero and we say, that's me. I'm Samson, I'm flawed. I'm David. I can get some courage. But when you read the Bible rightly, you see that God doesn't give courage. He gives champions. So Samson, who Joshua preached about to you last week, he told you this. You just didn't listen. Samson was a champion that was given to the Israelites. He fought the Philistines on their behalf. He killed in the end, the Philistines and freed the Israelites as a champion, as a substitute, as a savior for those people. David... David is a champion. He's a substitute. He fought on behalf of the Israelites. He did for them what they could not do for themselves. We're going to talk about Esther next week. One of the most beautiful women in scripture. I don't know about physically, but the things that she did, the things she said are incredible. And you're going to find out that she was also a champion. She was a savior. She went on behalf of her people and got them the victory. You're going to see it as we work throughout the rest of the stories in the Bible. If you will approach the scripture this way, identifying the hero and not putting yourself there, but putting Jesus into that spot. Boom. I'm telling you guys, the Bible will open up in ways that you have never imagined. It'll stop being self-help. You'll stop feeling like you can't measure up. And you will start to understand that God doesn't offer you courage. He offers you a champion. Every one of these little stories, every one of these small heroes throughout the Bible point towards the real hero. Jesus Christ, our Savior. (laughs) I want to read a passage for you. We're gonna put it on there. Actually, let me let me point this out because I want you to listen to this verse we're gonna read through this context. This is the pattern that every one of God's champions follows. Every one of them. You'll see it in all the small heroes in the Old Testament. You'll see it certainly through the big hero in the New Testament. God's pattern for champions is that they always rescue through their weakness, not in spite of their weakness. They rescue through their weakness. And they always, every single time, they rescue as a substitute in place of the person who's in need. Let's put 1 Peter chapter number 2, verse 24 up there for you. It's talking about Jesus, the ultimate champion, the big hero, the one to whom every story ultimately points. And it says, he personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. It is by his wounds that we are healed. When you read the story of Jesus, you don't see God coming to earth to give us help. You see him coming to give us rescue, to put himself in our place, to save us, not through strength, not as a conquering warrior, but because he was willing to lay down his life to become as weak as you could possibly imagine to the point that he died so that we could be rescued and redeemed by him. Hey, listen, the reason that you feel so much fear facing the Goliath in your life is because you're looking at yourself in the wrong role. God does not expect you to pick up the stones and to kill the Goliaths that really matter. He already did that for you. You have a champion who's already come to earth, who's already accomplished what you can't do. That's the story the Bible's telling. Literally from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21, every one of those stories points towards the real hero, Jesus. Jesus.